Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, we, we're so thankful that you do love this world so much that you gave your son. We stand here not in condemnation, but in your love. We thank you for that. We ask that you turn our minds to your word. Let us draw your truth from it. Thank you for what you have given me, and I ask that what I speak is of you. So, Lord, we turn to you and ask that you lead us through this evening. We thank you for this season, these next two days as we contemplate this great sacrifice. We come to you in the name of our Savior. Amen. We've been on a journey, and that journey started with Jesus who set his face on Jerusalem, moving toward his destiny on the cross. And tonight is the last night of that journey. It's the night of his last meal with his disciples. And on this night, Jesus takes time to teach, to demonstrate a way of living that is foundational to being a part of his kingdom, to give his followers a lesson in what it means to serve others, how to be great, and how to love. Most of this journey has been from Luke's gospel, but tonight we're going to be looking at what John has to say. But we also listen to Luke, who tells us that at this Passover dinner, a familiar dispute had broken out among the apostles. Which one of them was to be considered the greatest? So from this context, and in what Jesus does, we draw our significance tonight. So if you want to follow along, you can read from John 13, beginning chapter 1. It's also on the screen. It's on page 763 of the Pew Bibles. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all these things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around them. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not every one was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. 
Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. This is the word of the Lord. So Jesus demonstrates his role as a servant by taking on the task of the lowest servant in the household. It is a task that's associated with the dinner party, washing of the guests' feet. And John emphasizes that Jesus does this to demonstrate and to show these men who were so close to him just how much he loved them. And it was a time when uh, most people moved around in their daily routine by walking on dirty, dusty roads, often muddy, probably loaded with animal dung. So by the time they got to the table, the feet had taken a beating, and they probably were pretty disgusting. And the dining ritual called for a servant as I said, probably the lowest ranking one in the household to wash the feet of the guests, to make them presentable, to, to, to recline at the table together. But there was no lowly servant present, so Jesus, surprisingly, but probably not so surprisingly, takes on the task. And Peter receives this as unacceptable, that his Lord and teacher would wash his feet that Jesus would humble himself in this way. Argue as they may about their relative rank, it is Jesus who is first among them, and he is taking on the humble task of washing their feet, of serving his followers, of showing his love for them. It's an act of humility, but it's also a demonstration of this principle of the kingdom of God. To be effective, we must serve from love. Nothing about himself is so important that it would stop him from serving others, to make his life that of a servant, a slave. Matthew's Gospel tells us that just before he entered Jerusalem, Jesus' disciples also had the who is the greatest argument. Jesus' answer then, so simply demonstrated in tonight's foot washing, was whoever wants to become great among you must first be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Greek word is doulos, slave, one with no dignity or privilege, one who has lost his freedom, one considered to be the property of another, one forced to do an unwelcome task, something that's assigned to him, like to wash the dirty feet of those invited to dine in the master's house. Jesus takes on the role of slave in this act of service to his followers. The dignity of being God is set aside to serve and to give dignity to those he serves. There are challenges for us in this story. The first is to accept that love and that service. Peter rightly recognized that Jesus was far above him, and that was, it was way outside of the norm for Jesus to wash Peter's feet. But Jesus says, if we don't let him serve us in this way, we have no part of him. Beyond the foot washing, Jesus is looking to his ultimate act of loving sacrifice, his death for our salvation. 
We gain our unearned worth before God through this act, but we must believe, we must accept it, we must embrace it to have a part with him. But there's a second challenge, and that is to do the same to others, to live sacrificially, to be servants, to be slaves to those whom God has put in our path, in the church and in the world. This is what runs contrary to our nature that causes us to ask, who is the greatest? In my experience, people do not line up enthusiastically to do the lowliest of of tasks. It's a fact that Americans don't want to go into the fields and pick lettuce or strawberries, leave it to somebody else. When I was at USF in the 60s, I worked as a coach and athletic director at a Catholic grammar school in San Francisco. A part of my job was to do janitorial work in the gym and cleaning out locker rooms and bathrooms on Monday after a full weekend of basketball games was not a pretty task. (laughs) It was humbling. And it offset the prestige and the adulation I received as a young guy for being a successful coach. But you didn't get the latter if you didn't do the former. And as disciples, as Jesus followers, we're called to emulate his servant leadership. And after washing the feet, Scripture tells us that he returned to his place. He returned to his role as teacher and Lord. And if you read the next chapters of John, you find that he did an awful lot of teaching that night. But as he did so, he asked the disciples, do you understand what I have done for you? What a penetrating question he asked in that moment. And it's addressed to us tonight. Do you understand what I have done for you? After he died and he rose, he ultimately did return to his place as God. It is he who sits at the right hand. And he asks us, do you understand what I have done for you? And to the apostles, he acknowledges that they rightly call him teacher and Lord. In verse 14, he says, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So that's our challenge, to set aside our nature, our prejudices, our prerogatives, our self-image, and become foot washers. As the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians, in this passage, it's on the cover of our bulletin, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to our own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mind, mindset as Christ Jesus. You know, there's two washings in the Passion story. There's Jesus washing the apostles' feet, done humbly as a servant, but also as a bold and a very confident act, as bold and as confident as going to his death. But later in the story, in his trial, we have Pilate washing his hands, washing his hands of Jesus. Pilate in front of an angry crowd, 
avoiding doing the right thing. An arrogant act of self-preservation grounded in insecurity and fear. So our question, do our actions imitate Jesus or do they imitate Pilate? As disciples, as the church, we are called to spread the good news of salvation, the story of this God who came to serve, ultimately by dying on a cross. Pride and arrogance, disdain for the lowly, detract from this call. Love and service foster it. We live in a world that speaks about service, but often falls very short of living it out. Often we praise those who we see doing good for others out of love, but stop short of doing so ourselves. We praise Mother Teresa for her work, but we will avoid going into the city and feeding the hungry and the homeless. Jesus calls us to wash their feet. And later, in John's same chapter of John's Gospel, chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus says, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And note that three times Jesus calls us to love one another in this passage. We are identified as his followers through our love. And this is a message to those in the church. How can we be witness to the world when we can't love and get along with each other? It's also a mandate that facilitates our mission, for it is through our love for those who are both inside and outside the church that the message of salvation is spread. How do we serve God? What does Jesus require from us? I can worship him and love him with all my heart, my soul, and my strength. Beyond that, I can serve him only by doing what he commands, to love and to serve others in his name, as he did. What is my faith and my worship if it does not play out in love and active service? It's the dead faith unaccompanied by deeds that James speaks to in his letter. Jesus loved the Father. He lived in faith and obedience, demonstrating his love through his love for people and his willingness to serve. This is our example. This is how we are to live. We are to serve in the way that Jesus did. And I was thinking about I was trying to find a contemporary example of somebody that we could imitate. A call to imitate Jesus. I was trying to think of who in our contemporary society models this. And I didn't have to go very far because one of the greatest blessings in my life has been to engage with President Jimmy Carter in our common work with Habitat for Humanity. And I believe that he's called our greatest former president because like Jesus, washing the disciples' feet, he has done the unexpected. Society would expect him to collect enormous fees for making speeches and public appearances, for sitting on corporate boards. But Jimmy Carter works for peace. 
in human rights, and he builds houses. He lives in a simple home and accepts no fees, living on his pension and his book sales, from which he gives graciously and generously. He openly speaks the word of God and in his actions preaches the good news. And I've seen how he so warmly and genuinely engages with people and embraces them when he meets them. In his words, the people that God puts in his path. And I have a story that I think brings us all together. And working alongside him in Memphis three years ago was a delight. And when our team arrived on the job site on Monday, we were met with a slab foundation on which we were going to build a house together. But several days of heavy rain had turned the ground around us into a muddy quagmire. Our first task was to spread straw around to absorb moisture and to secure our footing. And as I grabbed a large bunch of straw, I heard a voice just off to my right say, come on, Rosie, grab some straw and let's go to work. It was President Carter talking to his wife, Rosalind. And we started out our day together, me and the Nobel Peace Prize winning president and his wife spreading straw in the mud. And to borrow from Paul, and to paraphrase Paul, again from Philippians 2, I say that he did not consider his prestige, his position, or his accomplishments something to grasp. But he made himself nothing, taking on the nature of a servant. I believe the Carters are true Jesus followers, worthy of imitation. They live the mandate to do as Jesus does, to love and to serve one another. And something I heard him say in Haiti a number of years ago remains fresh on my heart. And it's something that I've shared many times. He said that doing this work allows us to do what we're called to do without exalting ourselves or demeaning the people we come to serve. This embodies the anonymous quote on the front of our bulletin, if serving is beneath you, leadership is beyond you. As followers of Jesus, let's wash each other's feet. And as followers of Jesus, let's spread straw together. Amen.